Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. We bring you the very best recorded panels, workshops, and seminars concerning role-playing game design and publishing. This has been made possible by the generous contributions of the panel speakers and double exposure with their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 75, Matters of Scale, Running a Small Gaming Business. Recorded at Metatopia 2015. Presented by Steve Segedy, Fred Hicks, and Rob Donahue. side of it and luckily I have the temperament that suits that um, something you want to keep in mind uh, uh, we've also kind of gotten where we've gotten very much by increments um, uh, from around the, about the same lunchtime time yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, you know, we started out in the print on demand space uh, you know, small games and building our way up and uh, now, now we're getting into the slightly less small territory, yeah. but you know, we're, we're, we're seeing how that's going. So I can talk about some of the growth curve, um, but that's also been covered by other panels, so I don't want to get too redundant on we should, that. We should really establish the spectrum someday, like who is the biggest, that is actually big, and then we can, like, you know... There is Watsy, and then there is all nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm Rob Donahue. I'm the other half of Evil Hat. I actually can speak to the Evil Hat business stuff far less intelligently than Fred can. Um, because I just get to be a brain in a jar. However, uh, I remain a powerful nerd on staying on top of uh, what is still available in terms of bootstrapping, getting your stuff out there, and what kind of actual grown-up business stuff you can do without breaking the bank. Uh, so I'm here much more in that capacity than uh, anything I know about how the hell we do business. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so uh, I guess... First of all, I'd just like to start, like, get a sense of who in the room is trying to do design and kind of where, you, where you are at that. So if you, is anybody already publishing a game, selling a game or a store saying that? Okay, a couple of you. Um, is it one game, two games? Okay, so you've got, you got a couple of them. Okay, great. So you might have some perspective to share on this as well. Um, who is interested in getting something in, into publication, looking to sell it? Who is terrified of getting something into publication? <laughs> yeah, you are the smart ones. <laughs> so, just starting out, when we were doing this, I guess ten years ago, we didn't think that we would get. We, we were just sort of playing around. It was our hobby. Like I think most people, we were doing it at home. We didn't like the system, or we, we had some new idea for a setting, and so we would try a few things at our table. And finally, we said, "Hey, you know what? Indie publishing is a thing. We could do that. We could get our game out there." And 
So we printed one small book at a small Alpha Graphics in Seattle and uh, printed some cards at FedEx and we put them together. We had 100 copies and we managed to sell those pretty quickly to a group of people that we had sort of, that had sort of been watching as we did it. Um, I think our total outlay for that was $600 or something like that that we, that we put out of pocket and then made back when we sold that. Man, big spender. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was a very conservative hobby level move. And in fact, for several years, we were just reporting it on our taxes as hobby income because it didn't seem like a significant thing we were doing. It was just you know, as long as we didn't lose any money, it was okay. We just keep doing it. We did not uh, incorporate as a business. We did not. Uh, I think all the taxes were handled by Jason. It was just his income because uh, we weren't making any money anyway. Neither one of us was taking any profit from it. It, whatever we got went back into the business pool. Um, so I, I guess part of what I'm trying to paint the picture of is that you may come into this thinking, oh, well, if I'm going to get serious about this, I've got to get lawyers and accountants and we've got to you know, like make our business plan and we've got to like make this a big thing yeah. and invest a lot of money. You don't have to start that way. You can start a little more slowly, sort of feel it out, find out what your path is. Yeah, you've got to right-size your starting point to your means because it should always be built around the idea of how much money can I lose and not mine, uh, or at least uh, uh, treat it as the price of admission to the ride that was the publication experience that followed. Um, uh, we got kicked into uh, uh, becoming a business because uh, uh, back from my uh, uh, college years, I knew uh, Jim Butcher you know, just as the guy. Um, and uh, he's the author of the Dresden Files series, New York Times bestseller at this point, et cetera. Um, at, he called me seemingly out of the blue in 2004, 2005, 2005, um, uh, and said that he'd gotten a lot of uh, like inquiries about the rights to doing Dresden Files as a role-playing game, uh, but he really wanted friends who we could like really truly trust with his baby to, to take on the job, and would I be interested, because Rob and I had done some stuff for free online, and it had gotten some award recognition, and that had made it back to him through his gamer agent. Um, uh, so that was kind of the oh yeah yeah um, uh, uh, so that was kind of the uh, moment where like we were suddenly like okay going from hobby to 60 miles per hour I'm like well it's going to take us a while because I'm going to need to build the company up to the point where it can actually be the company that can publish this thing and that was about a five year span as it turned out I thought it was going to be shorter of course um, it's um, never it was shorter. not uh, uh, but along the way, we published uh, Don't Rest Your Head, Spirit of the Century. Um, I don't think we did much else during just that, that. It was just those. And then we had the... the, the fi finally, we got to our Dresden dollars at the far end of that. But because we knew that um, eventually we were going to get this game out there, and we had you know at least a decent idea that it was going to sell a few copies, um, we were willing to put in a bit more of our spare cash than uh, like the bully club starting point. But... Well, I mean, but in contrast, the Don't Rest Your Head budget was under $100. Well, the Don't Rest Your Head budget wasn't. It was, yeah. uh, uh, you know... Uh, uh, $60 worth of clip art. Stock art, stock me art, fiddling yeah. around with Photoshop, me fiddling around with InDesign, and Lulu taking care of all the printing and shipping costs. So, uh, yeah, as, as purchased. Yep. Uh, so, uh, the, like, even the idea of printing something ahead of time mm -hmm. was not our launch point uh, because really it was kind of a side project for me I'm like nobody's going to buy this I'm going to underprice it and everything I know oh crap people are buying, buying it I need to uh, figure out what I'm actually doing here um, uh, but uh, it, it, what's, what the common thread is is that we both like looked at what we thought we would get back 
whether ultimately or, or in reasonably short order, but could afford to not get back. Um, uh, and uh, there's, there's, I don't think that there's necessarily hard and fast rules for figuring that out. Like, like there's not necessarily a magical spreadsheet that everyone who does publishing is secretly keeping to themselves and not sharing with you, although it can feel like that. Um, uh, that tells you like how much you should budget. It's really just like start within your means and then size your project according to that. And if your project is outside the size of those means, um, perhaps don't do it yet. Um, uh, fail quickly, yeah. early, with something that you can afford to fail on, yep. so to speak. So there are a couple of takeaways that I want to talk about about that. So one of the things that came up in our panel that we talked yesterday, uh, and that is evidenced here, is uh, find a friend. Like we all have talents we can bring to this game, and in Fred's case, it's layout. He could save them all, all these layout costs by doing it himself. Yeah. Uh, and in my case, I did all the initial like web design and so forth, and Jason was doing the design work. And we had another friend that was doing the layout for us, and the three of us formed a company. So you've got friends, and they're adults and professionals, and they have skills. Maybe they're lawyers or accountants or whatever, but they can help you out. Um, but forming up with someone else that you can trust is a great way to get started if you're trying to get publishing off the ground, because they're going to have skills that you don't have, and they're going to have time that you don't have, especially if you've got a day job and a family and all that sort of thing. Uh, it helps to have some They're also going to keep you honest. Yeah. Um, yep. This is a vanity-laden hobby, and there is no shame in that. If you are doing this for vanity, then more power to you, as long as you are also aware of that. Um, it's also very easy, and uh, you know, as someone who often gets identified as like the, the evil hat guy, um, uh, it's very easy to get like inside your own head and only have your own perspective. And uh, um, I think Rob often underplays his role for evil hat, uh, but. Uh, were he not, you know, the captain of holding up the mirror and giving me perspective on things, uh, a lot of stuff just would have gone utterly off the rails uh, uh, early on. Uh, you know, I had a lot of drive. I had the uh, yep. the, the, the laser focus oh, yeah. thing that you joke about. Something uh, would happen. Something would happen, right? But yeah, <laughs> just not necessarily like, I mean, the thing we yeah, needed to happen. It, yeah. Well, you know, it's towards the end of the Bond movie. The satellites knocked out of alignment. The laser's just cutting across the landscape. That's me. I'm the laser. Um, yeah, uh, that is my primary job. Is as long as Fred is pointing away from everyone's face. <laughs> Don't look into the light. Um, uh, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that it didn't challenge our friendship occasionally. It did. Um, uh, but uh, through that through that process and because of the trust, I was able to like with reasonable rapidity get to a point where I could handle hearing that I was wrong and hearing what I needed to improve on a lot. And that receptivity <laughs> to, to, to that sort of feedback is valuable to you here at Metatopia. Um, uh, and it's really crucial to making sure you actually find your path to success through whatever it is that's, that, that's hitting you, I think. Yeah. And this, this is not saying you can't go into business yourself. This is not saying that a partner is the only way to do it. No, but, uh, but if you awesome. don't have a partner in your business, then find some other way to be having one. Um, you just need someone to be your reality check, if nothing else. Yeah. And that might be, you know, if you're smart, you're pulling in people to help edit your work because yep. you can't edit your own work. If you're smart, you've got somebody helping you with your art direction because you have blind spots. You have things you can't see. You, uh, 
you grew up with Tolkien art, and that's what you think is awesome, and somebody else is going to say, yeah, that's fine, except that it doesn't, you know, include everyone. So, you know, having that other perspectives is useful. But I also want to talk about some specifics. Like, you're trying to start publishing, and you're talking about business. You're talking about printers and distributors and contractors, like editors and layout. And which ones can you go to? And the reason this is called matters of scale is because it changes as you go along. And it seems like you need a lot of that right up front. You don't necessarily. But it's useful to know what your options are. I think, talking about Lulu, you know, 10 years ago, Lulu was the only print-on-demand shop that I was aware of. Yep. But now, your options are a lot broader. Yeah, I mean, I think there were other options at the time, but they were the sort of thing where you had to maybe no, they were, they write were a letter. There yeah, was, no, no, there was no. no guarantee of website, and there was all, absolutely no guarantee of marketplace to face. Oh, no, it was even worse than that. Most of the, the thing that Lulu primarily replaced were the vanity presses, yeah, yeah. where you were paying extra money to be an author. Um, and they were basically largely front ends for scams. Um, the fact that Lulu pretty much turned it into a, an automated business was transformational. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, their, and their website interface was just miles better than anything else that did have a website yep. interface at the time. I mean, I, I, I remember doing a little bit of shopping around when I decided I needed to like preprint, and I'm like, no, I need to stay in the Lulu pocket right now because everything else is maddening and clearly based on like five to ten-year-old technology. It was just not, not, a, not a good time to, uh, especially... If, like me, you didn't want to interact with a human, you wanted to interact with a predictable program and input your things and have it go. Um, uh, yeah, so... And the only reason we didn't use Lulu for our first game was that Jason ludicrously designed a game that required cards. Cards! And nobody was yeah. gonna, there was no way to do that. And every small printer we talked to laughed at us. Yeah. Ten years too early, Jason. <laughs> yeah, Ten years exactly. Too early. We adamantly refused to ever do cards again, and now, of course, all of our games have cards. Well, drive-through cards has made that so much easier. drive-through cards is now an option. Yeah. So if you're looking to do something, even if you're here because you're doing board games or card games, that's a really great option because you can now set up an account with them for free, and you don't have to sell anything through them, but you can set up your cards and prototype that thing, get an actual deck that you can then work with. So it's a really great way to yeah, start. Well, gosh, Stephen Fred, since it's so easy to get uh, get print-on-demand going, if I've got a PDF, shouldn't I just automatically be doing a print-on-demand as well? <laughs> it depends on what your PDF's doing in the first place, right? Um, uh, and if you're designing for... Well, this is my layout. And that's why. If you're designing for print... Um, that's going to put constraints on your PDF that you might not put on it otherwise. Um, so I, if you really rock the PDF format and you think you've got a number of people who you know, got their attention already in the PDF space, that can be a great place to start and it involves very minimal costs all around. Uh, so it could potentially be a good way to start growing your audience. And more to the point, um, that time before Evil Hat was actually a company, uh, all we published in was PDF, oh, right? sure. And we weren't putting anything up, and we wouldn't put anything up except to like get ourselves a personal copy of like yep. the prior iteration of Fate or whatever. Um, so if you're just starting out, uh, PDFs through drive through, POD stuff. That's those are great ways to get going. But yeah, and, now, yeah. but and this is the, I'm going to raise the red flag for why I brought up the, the question myself. Sure. Um, it is easy to assume that your PDF is going to look like your book, and that's a lie. Um, if you really know your layout, know what you mean you're your doing, book is going to look like a PDF. either way. Oh, yeah. 
if you totally know what you're doing and are already a skilled layout person, you can make adjustments for it and your book will probably look fine if your PDF looks fine. But even if you know your stuff inside and out, you cannot rely on that until you've actually seen a physical book. Mm-hmm. So there is, you could, it's not that doing print-on-demand introduces an, a huge extra layer of work, but treating it as a as just something you can add on is going to invite disaster yeah, on you're your You're going to have to also do like different output settings with yep. your layout program. You're going to need to do things like make sure that your inner margins are not uh, so tight that your text is falling into the binding when it's printed. That is a super common yeah, that, mistake. That's a super common mistake, right? Um, uh, so, you know, I, I generally design for print. Um, and and uh, uh, because then PDF is satisfactual. Um, uh, sometimes it means that I don't then really heavily leverage the digital side, but I don't yeah, know yeah. Really to get that. It raises the question, uh, just from a access to tools point of view, I know you use InDesign and probably yeah. always have, yep. but that's not something that everybody's going to be easy access to. And um, it's not necessarily easy to learn. I mean, yeah. I think it's easier than a lot of the other options, but... So there's a barrier expensive. to entry. You yep. can use other programs. There are... Word and pages will produce something functional. Yeah, Scrivis is the one that I think uh, Mark Truman is using. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's an option. You can learn LaTeX. No. (laughs) LaTeX is not as bad as people will make it sound. But Um, it has a very specific idea of what the thing should look like. It's better than that. So that used to be my impression. I actually finally sat down and dug into it. The problem is there is a default behavior with LaTeX that basically if you... LaTeX, for folks who are unfamiliar with it... Spelled LaTeX. Yes, spelled LaTeX. It is a markup language that uh, is used by academics and mathematicians uh, to do document formatting. And it's really, really insanely powerful. The problem is it is insanely powerful and tricky to learn. It's insanely powerful for mathematicians designed by a mathematician who is tired of not being able to output textbooks that can display his formulas. Yes. And so the problem is unless you take the time to learn it and customize it, every every LaTeX document looks the same. Um, you will see one and you go, oh, you made this in LaTeX, and it will be okay. Um, but if you do not have the budget, but you are a big nerd, it is a pretty powerful option. That's kind of a rarefied option. I think I think Scribus... Yeah, big nerds are... Yeah, well, yeah. But I, I think things like Scribus tend to be like the most commonly offered alternative to InDesign. I would stay away from Quark, but that's at the price point of InDesign. I will say that... Uh, uh, Adobe has done the monthly subscription uh, Creative Cloud thing now, which, so long as you can, like, spend, I don't know, I think I think your entry level is potentially like 60 or 80 bucks a month or something it like that. Even, it could even be cheaper than that if yeah. you get the right affiliation. And, like and, and I can tell you right now that within the time span in which they will go from one major version to the next major version, um, uh, your subscription plan is generally going to cost less than it would to pay for that upgrade uh, if you just bought the software once and then upgraded later. For Adobe, um, the, based upon how much of the suite you want, yeah. if you're just doing one program, I believe it's like $50. Yeah, yeah. It's $100 for everything. Yeah, I, I do the everything option, but that's me. Um, however, um, if you guys can somehow squirm into an academic deep discount, it's like $20. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. So that's, where, that's, yeah that's where it gets it. And this, so, is, this is a time-honored tradition of abusing academics to publish role-playing games. <laughs> so, <laughs> um. so, you know, a couple of options. Like We're still like, how they wouldn't exist otherwise. Yeah, you, you spend a little bit of money and, and a lot of effort learning and get your way into InDesign. You use one of the cheaper programs, or find yourself somebody like Fred who knows InDesign and already has the subscription on their computer. And they have, you know, yeah. Oh, so, so here's a dirty trick: find someone like Fred and have them create your template. Mm. Yeah, and then that'll use cost it. less. 
Um, uh, and then you can do your text flows and your and your moving objects around and so forth. Uh, part of the reason I think we're talking about layout a fair amount um, is that it is really where the rubber hits the road between I have a, a word file and and a, a proven design that I play test and all that, and where it actually then gets translated into your product transition, right? Because if all you want to do is release it and get it out there and you're sending it for free, you know what? Word is going to do you fine. Uh, also, because uh, layout artists can be expensive and you can find somebody who's reasonably friendly to you and is going to give you the gamer discount, but that gamer discount could mean a rate between like $500 and $1,500. And if you'd like to save yourself between $500 and $1,500 per book that you do, um, being able to do that yourself uh, uh, is, is, is a pretty great, great way. And if you look at that as savings... Um, that's savings that you can then use to justify the uh, monthly cost of Creative Suite. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I mean, InDesign is really kind of the gold standard as far as layout programs go at this point. Um, uh, and it's, it, it tries less aggressively to poke you in the eye of the learning process as opposed to pretty much every other thing. So on the low end, you've, got your, you've done your writing, you've done your playtesting, you've laid it out, you've got something ready to print. Um, where do you print it? And once you have it printed, how do you sell it? Where do you sell it at? Go to. So the big printers uh, are going to be looking for a thousand dollars or a thousand units minimum uh, to print. But you're going to be able to find smaller digital houses like Alpha Graphics or whatever they can put out a hundred books or five hundred books. Yeah, a lot. Of, a lot of those operate in sort of the same economics and 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 function space as uh, the like the pure print on demand, true print on demand, and things which people call print on demand, but which is more accurately called digital short run. Um, uh, are, are your sub-1,000 quantity uh, uh, thing. They're most of the same outfit this time. They just have, you know, like your, uh, uh, but not all of them offer the ability for somebody to say, I'm, I would like to buy this book. They buy the book, and the one book is printed and, and, and shipped to them. That's, that's true print on demand. That's Digital what short run is like, I'm going to print 100 at a time, um, uh, which is essentially what you and I were using yeah. graphics or Lulu for back in the, right. in the start point. And at least in our day, and it may have shifted now, but working with those small printers, uh, we were we were constantly using new ones because something would happen with the old one. Their they customer service would get terrible. Screw uh, those they, guys. They would yeah. stop taking our calls, or they would just tell us straight up, "We're not doing that kind of work anymore," or whatever. And it always seemed like. It or was we this. put our one good printer in a truck and it got damaged. Yeah. 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 That happened. Yep. So anyway, it's it's a little bit of a dicey game. I suspect that it is much tighter now, and you can do the same thing with the actual print-on-demand places like drive-thru uh, because you can get bulk quantities of that thing and they'll give you a discount for it. And, and I mean, and the, the, the thing that is obvious enough that I'm saying it only because it's the obvious thing is the smaller the run, you're, the more you're paying per unit. That's, yep. that's the baseline of this math. So uh, producing a, like a, a fiasco size book, a 6 by 9 book, uh, would probably be, I'd say the unit cost would be about six dollars or something yeah, like that for get, get into that. for just a couple of hundred of them at a time. You could probably get it for about six bucks, um, which is fine if what you want to do is sell it direct, direct to people, or even maybe going through Indie Press Revolution, which is a really great option for when you're getting getting started. Mm, there's some you know, there's some math there where the I mean yes, but so let's talk about pricing. Of yeah, well, pricing. Right, this is where we're starting into the matters of scale part of this, yeah. right? Um, First and foremost, I think it's important to understand how the math of distribution works. Let's, so let's go there. Let's say you have a $20 book, and you want distributors to pick it up. And distributors are the people who sell, uh, uh, you know, grab a certain number of copies of your game, and then sell it uh, as ordered to retailers like Ryan. You will hear um, names like Alliance. Yeah, Alliance, ACD, uh, 
I guess PhD, Diamond Diamond is IPR, comics, but there's some overlap. But cloud, but more indie friendly. Yep. Um, uh, and so forth. The, 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 I can I can give you a longer list if you if you want, or you just find me online for that. Um, so, uh, what they do is they buy the product, the twenty dollar product from you at eight dollars per unit. So notice that if your unit cost is six something. Probably that plus the cost of uh, shipping it to the distributors. The distributors aren't going to pay you for the shipping. Um, uh, uh, means that you're making goose egg. Possibly losing uh, money. Or possibly yeah. losing money. Um, uh, uh, depending on your contract clauses with them and such. Uh, so you need to be, have gotten yourself up to a scale where, in my opinion, your unit price should be 20% or less of your cover price. Because then for every unit you sell into distribution, you're paying for tape. Because you get forty percent on one on one sale, so I get eight dollars. And if my price per unit is four dollars per unit or less, uh, my eight dollar sale of one unit has paid for two of them. Well, and that's gosh, a pretty good ratio, Steve and Fred. That sounds pretty expensive. Do I need to go into distribution? Nope. Nope. We did not go into distribution until the Dresden Files rolled in. Certainly, at that scale, when you're paying that much per book, then no, you probably aren't really aiming to get it onto retail shelves and stores. You're, that's your direct sale market. Like I said, you can still do Indie Press Revolution. They're just not going to be able to sell it to their retailers. Right. They're going That's to sell the it trick. through their store and charge you 20%. And yeah. drive through will sell POD and uh, PDFs for you, and they'll charge 20 to 30% or something like that. Oh, well, if you're selling PDF and you're not exclusive with drive through, um, then they'll take a 35% cut. If you're exclusive with drive through, they'll take a 30% cut. But um, gosh. And and well, hang on. Yep. And uh, if they're doing print on demand through them, uh, first you get the margin, right? First you pay for the cost of, of printing the thing. Then whatever's left over gets that formula applied to it. But gosh, guys, can't I just sell them directly to stores? You, I've got a friendly local game store. You, I can you, bug Jim. Right. Uh, but you, you could. But uh, you will find that quite a number. Now there are. Retailers who are the exception. Uh, I'm saying this knowing that there's at least one in the room. Um, uh, uh, but a lot of retailers want two or three places to go to with their list of books that they need to buy and buy them. Um, and when you come in as uh, special snowflake publisher number 103 and have your one book that they may or may not have ever heard of, they might be willing to do a special deal with you once, maybe twice for a small quantity, but that's rare in and of itself. So that's that's the role of the, the distributor there. Now, what's interesting about IPR is, again, if you can get your unit costs down a bit, and you can get them down into that, like, on your $20 book, into that four or less, even doing, like, just a couple hundred units. Um, uh, I think your profit margin is not great, but it's there. Uh, uh, I think the net that you end up with after... IPRs, fees, and the discount that they need to offer to retailers, you end up with about 44%, 45% of your cover price. So that's not that different from the 40% of your cover price that you get with a normal distributor. But IPR is very, very, very well known uh, with uh, retailers at this point as a source of role-playing games that can't be found anywhere else. Very strongly identified with story games, so particularly if you're doing a story game. Um, uh, a lot of like the big normal distributors um, uh, are not going to be interested and not going to pick it up, but IPR can and will. And, 
also give you a second direct sale storefront on, on, the, on the net. Another advantage of working with IPR, especially when you're getting started, is that they either go themselves or work with local retailers to cover a convention presence at all the major shows. Yeah, and as a small publisher, you're going to have a very hard time going to a lot of shows. I'm sorry, what's IPR? Indie Press Revolution. Thank you for, Thank you for yes. asking that question because we make too many Jason questions. Walters will be here next hour. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Great. Okay. Uh, yeah. Jason Walters from IPR was going to be. Yeah, he was going to be on the panel, but he's. Uh, yeah. I, I I believe detained. I assume or, he or fell or off lost. something. Yeah. Um, or 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 Kenneth Hyde found him. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, so right. yeah. So we sort of we went from we talked about printing and distribution. Right. right. Distribution at the larger scale, they're probably not going to get very interested in you until you you're printing in a large quantity. Uh, You've made enough noise that they're going to notice you, right? right. Like, I, yeah. I was going to not go into distribution even with the Dresden Piles uh, role-playing game, but that was a loud enough noise that Alliance came to me and said, uh, how can we make this happen? Right. I'm like, well, since you're coming to me, I know that I have leverage. Right? <laughs> uh, so I pushed for basically a discount that was a little bit more like the IPR uh, 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 rate that was sold. To a distribution that meant that they would order a little bit less, but it was kind of my comfort zone at the time, and I needed to be in my comfort zone with this. Uh, and I'm also not going to branch out to other uh, other distributors just yet. I'm going to use you guys as my test case. And if I'm like, ah, bad fire, and I back away, great. And I would only be pulling out of one. But if that worked out, then I could diversify, and that's ultimately what I did. I, did, I ended up going with a number of retail, uh, distributors after that uh, because the experience was re reasonably positive, and they did get us in terms of sales volume significantly more. Um, uh, so, I mean, you know, at the same time, 40% of your cover price is 40% of your cover price. Realize that um, uh, one direct sale that you can make of your book is worth two and a half of those. Yeah. Except if you start bringing in the value calculation of having your book on shelves in retail stores, which right. is suddenly a much larger presence. It's advertising by, by existence. Um, uh, and it also potentially it gives you a chance to... Uh, uh, directly or indirectly do right by retailers and the retailers who really like what you did with your thing um, uh, are going to start becoming your advocates. And through their advocacy, they're going to grow audience for you. And well, gosh, guys, aren't you kind of stuck in the 20th century? Yes. I thought Kickstarter was going to solve all these problems for me. Uh, Kickstarter just accelerates all these problems for you. That's, <laughs> the, I, mean, that, that's the, I don't want to turn this into a Kickstarter panel because I can... No, I, but it's I've important done, to mention because it's money. Of them. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, Kickstarter is, is, is a great means to get the money that you don't have. Um, the problem is that you then have the money you didn't have and need to be smart about it in ways that taking the time to get it the slow way would have taught you. Um, so there's just a lot of ways for success to kill you. It's also not uh, magic there. money. It's, all, it's not magic you, money. You can't just be like, okay, I've got an idea. I'm going to set up a Kickstarter page and people are going to throw money at me. Yeah. It just doesn't work that way. You're, yeah. You are translating all of the work that you've done and the networking that you've done and the word that you've gotten out into the attention that gets you the uh, money. Sort of the crazy thing that's true about Kickstarters or crowdfunding of any sort is that per Kickstarter, it is itself essentially a startup business. You need to know uh, uh, how you're launching, how you're reaching audience in order to convert that audience into capital. Uh, uh, and you need to also know your exit strategies for not making the target, barely making the target, and massively overfunding. And if you don't know how to handle, e if you haven't figured out how you're going to handle each of those three cases, like, oh, crap, suddenly I need to have shipped to my house 
2,000 boxes of, of things and then personally ship, ship them out. Crap, I didn't anticipate that at all. And because I didn't anticipate that, I didn't budget for the additional cost of having someone else do it for me. So I either have to break my back doing this myself. Yeah, Super fun. Which, which is learning logistics and shipping you know, stuff all by yourself. Or paying those extra things out of pocket, right? So there's lots of ways of like, oh, we got, you know, 50,000 more than we were expecting and spent $75,000 more than we were expecting. That can happen. And the, the other way, if, if talking about Kickstarter, a Kickstarter campaign as its own business doesn't scare you, think about it this way. It's like designing another game, right? You, mm -hmm. you are taking bits and pieces of other people's Kickstarters and you're like, oh, that's a good idea. I'll do that. And this is the way that Kickstarters get done. So I'll just build on this model. And then how do I get more attention? And, oh, do I do a bunch of stretch goals and... Pretty soon you've made this elaborate thing and for a month you're gonna try and get everybody really excited about it. And your launching of it is your playtest of it. Yeah. Yep. There's, there's no, there's no, we put it out, uh, except for missing your funding target. But like if you actually fund, it's like, oh crap, we're committed. Yeah, no. And yeah. Uh, didn't design it right. So, you know, it's a, it can be a daunting thing. I, it's it's telling that the three or four Kickstarters that we've done, Three uh, that we've done have all been more or less the same. Like we've structured them in more or less the same way because at this stage of the game, I don't need more complications and surprises. We want to add value to what we're doing, but we don't want to promise the moon yeah, and we'll end up doing what they did. Yeah, when when you're doing the repeat Kickstarter thing, um, uh, I find it valuable to occasionally like tweak one minor variable from one to one so you can actually because there's never an apples to apples comparison, but you can at least get in a I don't know Macintosh to Granny Smith. Yeah. Kind of thing, yeah. right? I find an invaluable community for this is Kickstarter. Yeah, well, yeah. If you yeah. if you really want to see everything that's being done wrong, Kickstarter. Right. I mean, I just can't soak in that kind of toxic. They're not actually that toxic. I know it's not that toxic, but it's the the commitment to criticism right. that's not all that's sometimes as sport instead of as instruction. That that is where I'm like, yeah, I'm not cool. sure. I found them more positive than I expected. When yeah, I sure. Got in there, yeah, yeah. The what I. You, you learn what makes people skeptical about Kickstarter, mm -hmm. uh, Kickstarter, and then you see how they how so many of them fail. It is informative and terrifying to listen to people's feedback about other Kickstarters, where they're like, "I still haven't gotten this book from two and a half years ago." I'm like, yes. oh, God, please don't let us do that." Now, yeah. another, another I'm, I'm going to really try to end the Kickstarter topic around yeah. here, but uh, another uh, uh, thing that you can do, which is sort of me staring into the abyss here, that I do myself. Um, uh, is if you go to kicktrack, traq.com, they have an RSS feed available for various categories. And I have the games category set up with if this and that to email me every time a new games Kickstarter is launched. And what this does for me is it shows me how many quietly crappy Kickstarters <laughs> are out there. <laughs> quietly crappy, right? Yep. Because if they're magnificently crappy, everyone talks about them. And if they're magnificent, Everyone talks about them. There's this really quiet middle zone which a lot of Kickstarters fall into, and what this constant. I would like ten thousand dollars. I have been working on this game for twenty years, and its rules are the most realistic you have ever seen. Yeah, and that's the entire text of the page. I'm not joking. <laughs> yeah. There are Kickstarters that that are basically like that. that. Right, and then something that was made out of word art just for a logo. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so you, it, it, it's. It, looking at as many <laughs> examples of failure, uh, but examples of so like of like eh, success is, is really good because the percentages are accurate there, right? That that's what what the whole picture so, looks like. Uh, guys, 
it's almost like you're suggesting that this might cost money. Which this are you talking about? But it's all of them. All of it. (laughs) If I want to be a real business, I can't do that for free? Nope. Well, uh, like I said, I don't know that you have to come up with a lot of money to start with, but I do think that you're building. You're reinvesting and you're you're sort of building that scale. I mean, you can bring down the monetary cost by paying the time cost more. Right. right? Um, And uh, when you pay the time cost more, that can be really draining, and it can be creatively you know, crushing. So if you, again, if you're the only person doing it, uh, uh, you might find yourself stalled out for years. A, g- a good example of that is fulfillment. Um, so you, you've got I your, feel your hundred games that you've printed, and they're now sitting in a stack of boxes on your living room table, and you're like, oh, okay, well, I guess I've got this spreadsheet. This shouldn't be too hard, right? So you quickly like do your postage and get your envelopes and pack it all up and three days later you and your wife and your kids and your neighbor have finally finished getting all that <laughs> stuff out the door and you're like, hey, it worked really well, it was fine. I'm tired, but hey. And then the next time it's a thousand books and you're like, okay, screw this. Yes. Never <laughs> again. My operation doesn't or, scale. I didn't yeah. read enough. Right, so at that point you're looking at a <laughs> There are four and six. There's only so many boxes they can lift at a time. Draw pictures on it. So I think that it's a good idea to start looking at other. There are other options for, like for fulfillment as, as an example, but they're going to cost money. Yeah. Um, you can you can do stamps.com. Yeah. And, I mean, if you're going to do the Iron Man and do it yourself, uh, uh, stamps.com is a reasonably good way to go. U.S. postage is something everyone can look at and understand online. Yeah. So if they question your postage rate. You go, well, have yourself a look. If you've, done, find a cheaper if you've done Kickstarter, then Backer Kit is trying to get themselves into the business of taking over at the end of that and helping you manage all those sales and the fulfillment. They don't do well. fulfillment themselves, but they link to a number of automated or semi-automated fulfillment products that you can work with. And in our case, we're working. Um, you can work with uh, IPR can do this for you. Mm-hmm. If you're working with them, their warehouses can ship things for you. If you're working with a bigger distributor like Alliance, you can work out warehousing that's, that's arrangements. That's often what we do. Yeah, where they'll ship things for you. In our case, we mostly rely on, a, um, on our local retail store that also has warehouses. Well, yeah, you, they happen to have a really good, I, I visited the store, they happen to have a really good shipping operation that they can spin up that don't always have to yeah. in the back of the store because they also have a reasonably lively online yeah. sales. They, yeah, they do about two-thirds of their business in online sales and about a third in the store. Yeah. And I think that number is maybe shifting more to the store as they're focusing on that. But it means that they've got a warehouse and warehouse staff who at different times of the year are not very busy. Yeah. Which is why when I wrote her the other day and said, oh, our, our shift date slipped and we're now in December. I know that's Christmas, but you could manage that, right? And she was like, sure, let's do it. Oh, well, so <laughs> that, that was more gun ho than I expected. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> me too. Yeah. How do you spell scale promotion? promotion? Like you're showing up at events like this. Yeah. How do you scale up when you are really popular and people want you to be a I mean, I I, I, I think (laughs) I think that I think the victory condition for 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 being a publisher is my desire to go going to conventions can be covered by the company without beggaring it. Right. Um, uh, But that's flipping hard. Um, I mean, the thing is. I don't know, you have to be some, in, in some cases you kind of have to be a social media wizard. 
um, uh, of some sort. Wizard! Well, it, it is exactly uh, like everything else that we've been talking about. Yeah, sure. It, it is a, you are buying, there, there's effectively, and we should probably rattle off, there's a list of skills you are going to need to get your game out the door. You and, and to a certain level of success is you are going to need layout skills you are going to need writing skills you are going to need editing skills you are going to need art direction skills you are going to need actual art skills um, you may need sales skills you will probably need marketing skills any combination of these can be filled by you with some combination of time, talent and training and insanity but the likelihood that you can fill them all is low, and the bigger you get, the likelihood that you can fill them at the level that is necessary for that is I did layout for our very first book because I knew FrameMaker, and it was okay, but there is a reason I do not do our layout anymore. Fred had sufficient layouts. Well, here's the thing. Fred has sufficient layout skills to scale up. And that goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, I was has, able to scale up on a lot of fronts. Yes, and, and internet presence and things like that. But right. um, our Spirit of the Century was edited by a friend of ours who is a very capable editor, but is not an editor. And there's a reason we had to bring in an actual honest-to-God editor, possibly more than one, um, for things like the Dresden Files. Mm-hmm. There's no clear-cut point where you make that transition from... I can get by with the skills I have to I really need to pay someone for this. But if you are not aware that that point exists, it's going to surprise you. Be enough of a control freak to build at least some of those skills so that you can save costs. Yes. Um, be not enough of a control freak that you can't then delegate every single thing that you were doing before once you get big enough. If nothing else is worth learning enough of the skills that you can speak intelligently to the people who have them. Yeah, that's that's kind of the awesome thing. Is like if you at least just get your basic yeah. level in like all of those, and then go, nope, I'm going to hire. Nope, I'm going to hire every time you need something above the basic level. You're much better at talking with everybody you're potentially going to. The one you missed was project management. management. Yes. Well, that's the one that co- creeps up on you most of all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, luckily, there are a number of geeks in uh, project management, so look around for people who are doing project management as their day job and ask them if they'd be willing to help you hit that month. So, we're getting close. I would like to yeah. let you guys ask questions. One yeah. thing I'll quickly say about promotion is that it's in, in many ways, the, the answer is the same as a lot of other things. is networking. Um, you're here at Metatopia. You're meeting all kinds of people. There's going to be some... You're, you are making a presence... Uh, by yourself. So by helping other people playtest, by talking about their games, by doing hacks of their games, by helping them do editing because you've got those skills, you're building a network of people who are then going to be paying attention to your stuff and talking about it online. So in that way, that uh, in my experience, that is the best marketing we ever get. That and customer service, which Fred is really, really good at. But you make, you make a name for yourself. That, that's actually my true core skill, yeah. <laughs> is the customer service. It, it built us a nice reputation over years of, of just treating people well. Um, and the read Kathy Sierra. Yes, she has put out. She's written a bunch of stuff. You can find her old blog posts online. They're brilliant. Um, but uh, she has a book out recently called Badass, um, and it is about making customers feel awesome. Also, search online for the phrase "zone of mediocrity." Yep, that's from her, and it's fantastic for understanding why people hating your game is awesome. Yes. Um, uh, and the last thing I'll say before we go to Q and A is. Uh, there may be some gaps in us talking about the specifics of costs and so forth. If you go to my personal blog, deadlyfriendly.com, uh, spelled like it sounds, uh, uh, there's a post uh, called, I believe, uh, The Secret Costs of Publishing Revealed, 
Um, I actually go through each of the categories and talk about like where sort of the price ranges are for those things. You can get uh, at least a lot of starting points there. It's not necessarily going to cover the 100% of the gamut, but it's going to get a lot of your basis so you can start figuring out what that list of jobs is that you might need to start um, learning how to do. What was the, the blog? And the post was? Uh, the Secret Costs of Publishing Revealed. I got that Yes. Yeah. So any questions after that? Um, okay. Uh, you're publishing books, but um, card games. I'm also publishing card games. I know, I played one of your games. I've got a game I'm looking at. I, I'm wondering about it because it's only 36 cards. I was mm -hmm. hoping to sell it at 13. Okay. All right. Look at how micro games you get, like Love Letter and so forth, are getting yeah. priced right now. If you're if you're thinking about going into retail with mm -hmm. that, um, that's kind of the th place that a 36. I think, yeah, a 36 card game would kind of be a chase for. Yeah, yeah, I know it's 15 cards, yeah. right? Yeah. But uh, the micro game category is kind of in that range, it is, right? It can go up to 30. It is kind of uh, a really good place for themselves as a big micro game publisher. Yeah. Their stuff runs from about 10 to 12, depending on the number of cards in there. Yep. Mm -hmm. Or like with the different uh, variations on Love Letter, there's a license attached to it. Oh, yeah, yeah. A license always adds yeah. that's yeah. cost. Um, so, so what I was thinking of, I was, I'm not sure, to hit uh, 1,000 copies from the manufacturer I wanted to go with, it'd be. Five thousand, including shipping to the customer, with that thirteen. So you're talking about a five dollar per unit. Uh, less than that, actually. Uh, okay. Plus, uh, actually, around that with the cost of shipping. Up yeah, that's the, yeah. 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 Right. Look at all of your costs if you can. Yes. I mean, but uh, yeah. So anyway. what are we? But I'm not sure. That's four hundred copies to reach five thousand dollars with that. Oh wait, it's not, so it's not a thousand copies. I thought you were saying. No, no. I have to sell oh, four hundred. Uh, well, remember that what I what I was talking about. I mean, well. First off, you need to, uh, your first step is easy. All you have to do is design a game that's compelling enough that 500 people seek it out and buy it. Um, but uh, uh, what I was talking about uh, 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 earlier of uh, like doing your math such that a distribution sale covers uh, uh, t up to cost tends to bear out reasonably well unless the market does out on you. I mean, there, yeah. there's always that risk factor to it. Um, but uh, only needing to sell 400 in order to cover a thousand run. If I do that, uh, yeah, right. that, 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 that's a ratio that's not well, unusual for me. The way I was thinking about it was I might try uh, an initial Kickstarter mm -hmm. with looking at Game Crafter and have an initial run like 100 sales. Mm -hmm. I'd probably get enough to make. 150 if I hit just that, mm -hmm. and be able to ship out the 100 that we sold. That's a way to mitigate risk. I mean, that yeah. that is the trade of paying demand it, versus. If it actually does work, right. I actually have. Well, I can go in to fact, the manufacturer we, much cheaper. That for that one, it's your goal is going to be less important than your tier pricing. So, yeah. and maybe that 13 is the magic number, and maybe 15 is the magic number, or because shipping and all these other things. Whatever. Psychologically, 15 and 13 15 are, not are the same thing, yeah. Okay. Um, but the point being, if you can say, if you can sit down and do a spreadsheet and say, if I'm doing these through a print on demand thing, they are going to cost me this much per unit. And there, and I, will make, and I will make my money at this price point. Yeah. And if my Kickstarter is successful enough to reach point X, and your spreadsheet will tell you what point X is, then I can go to a bigger printer and reduce my cost per unit. But, but <laughs> have a plan for if you don't. And yeah. starting starting modestly is, yep. is better than having a thousand things that you can't sell in your basement. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. you know, start, start small and find out if you've got a market. I, one of the biggest gifts they can give you is for your Kickstarter to fail. Because yeah. if it fails, then you found out that you don't actually have anybody that wants to buy that game, and you saved yourself a That's lot. That's the right way for the playtest of your Kickstarter game to, yep. to, yeah. to fail, right? Yeah. Uh, and I was just going to point out, 36 is um, uh, print-on-demand cards are yep. done 18 a sheet. So yeah. it's two sheets. You're good for a print-on-demand. Yeah, no, that's, that's yeah. way better than... Privacy cards is an interesting yeah. place to look yep. at if you only have uh, cards to worry about. If you are... Well, if you're invoking game crafter, it's possible you're also talking about like tokens and stuff, and they've got no, some like it's like, just cards, rule book, and the uh, tuck box. Okay, so what I would encourage you to do is print a prototype through drive through cards mm -hmm. and see how you like what that experience is like. Print one prototype through game crafter, see what see how you like that, and compare quality. Because mm -hmm. if you think people can get by with a, a, a digital slash home printed uh, rule book, and uh, or you can put the rules on cards. And a standard deck box from drive through cards you know, with your cards inside of it, um, uh, uh, then I find the quality of their print on demand cards to be pretty great. GameCrafter, I don't have any direct experience with. I, I hear kind of all over the map opinions about the quality of that. Their cards got better. Um, uh, yeah, and I certainly wouldn't send either drive through cards or GameCrafter output into retail. So definitely, if you're planning on reaching the retail, you're going to want your Kickstarter to stretch to the point of being able to fund that larger print run that yeah. you can actually get done in warehouse somewhere. All right, we have another question there. Yeah, are there, with role-playing games and printing, like going through printers, are there, are there timetables to be aware of? Because it seems like with Kickstarters and such, a lot of times I hear delays or this happened or the emails back China. Yes. There's a reason they call it the slow boat from China. It's slow. It's a boat. It can run into problems at ports, both outbound and inbound. It can run into problems coming through customs and so forth. Um, if you're going to get something from China, I would say, I don't know, give yourself a six-month time frame. Uh, and if, if, you're, if you're going to pay a little bit uh, extra per unit and print domestically with someone like Taylor Specialty Books, which is where we go for all of our hardcovers and softcover color interior uh, needs at the least, um, uh, you can get from I've handed off the files and approved the proof. So that's that's really your trigger point, and proof approval can take an elastic amount of time, but a couple of weeks at least. Um, uh, I can potentially get books leaving the printer and on their way to the warehouse that's going to send them out in like a month and a half, two months. That's what I was going to say. Six um, and and that that's a factor of three in your time frame, and uh, uh, because it's all domestic, customs ain't going to stop it. Um, because they speak the same language and also live in the same customer service culture, you're also not necessarily going to run into some like culture differential. And they're, yeah, they're analyzing it, it. Cost is one thing and shipping is one thing, but there's also just practically speaking, if something goes wrong with your China printer, you have it's in China much less you can do about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so we do print some things in China. Right. The things that we print in China are not our books. But um, yes, for talking for talking about books. scaling up for books. The yeah. people who can print books in China are yeah. further up the chain. And we go with Grand Prix International, um, who are uh, uh, a company that have, uh, again, people in our existing right. culture and language and so forth, who are expert at dealing with China and have their factories and so forth, and they can quote it around and so forth and get you the best deal. But their minimum uh, number of units that they will manufacture for you is 5,000. You actually have to be able to operate at that level in order to go go with that sort of. There thing. are a couple of other scheduling things to kind of keep in mind. 
depending on your printer, like printing with Taylor, they take two or three weeks off in the summer, the whole company closes. So if, you, if you're aiming to get your thing done and you've made promises on Kickstarter or whatever other way you're selling it, and then you contact the printer and you're like, oh, sorry, we're closed. It's going to take you another month. And the thing is, it's also worth noting, there is a dead month in Germany and there is a dead month in China, China. and they don't Chinese all overlap. Year, yeah, they don't, they don't overlap at all. Um, uh, well, I feel like there's something related to this. Uh, don't try to aim at Gen Con unless you can aim no. at Gen Con and land three months prior to Gen Con, right? Uh, because if you aim at Gen Con and, only, and, and, and your timetable is basically best case to land like a month prior to it, you're going to miss Gen Con. Or one of these times you're going to miss Gen Con some, maybe it's some, Something like half of the stories of games that have gone horribly wrong have been because someone rushed it to get to Gen Con. Yeah, yeah. Or, or didn't rush it because they were rightly making sure the product was good, but then the product got missed Gen Con stank on it because it was promised for Gen Con yeah. and didn't show up. Yep. Um, you know, so promise expectations, manage those. Uh, try to promise something that's months past when you are actually intending to deliver. That way, if you miss your intent, under promise, over deliver. People are like, wow, these guys are really good at hitting the numbers. You'll hear that about kick, evil hats, Kickstarters, and, and shipping because I... Overextend the, yeah. the the time frame for shipping. Um, we had one. Uh, we, sorry. I just want to say something about board games and printing overseas. My first game was United States military printing for Yes, there's a whole safety component when you get into yeah, that, and that would be a topic of its own. Anyway. Uh, back to the, the scheduling thing. Uh, what are the tips and tricks then to make sure you're right size in your schedule? Because if you know it's going to take this much, and the industry is getting Add 50% smarter, to every time component in your schedule. Yep. But how do you then avoid, you know, it's going to take a year when it should only take six months, and the crowd generally is learning. How long it should take then have the, started earlier. I mean, the, yeah. <laughs> I know there's no finite answer. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. Well, like, uh, I can talk about the Kickstarter in specific context. Uh, uh, on that, like, I when I launch Kickstarter, generally I've got something ready to go to press. Yeah. So all of the okay. last now, time factors that are that is a risk. to press, yes, uh, because you've spent a lot of money at that point. You spent on art. You've spent on. You're right, I've got a lot of stuff ready to go to press, or at least close to ready to go to press. And it's a risk that we launch. can take because we established. <laughs> And therein, no, and therein no, lies, therein lies one of the true secrets of scale. Right. right, scale is all about being able to manage risk. Yeah, yeah. Basically, the bigger you are, the bigger risks you can take because they each bigger risk represents about the same percentage for you of, of your total you know, like available capital. Right. Um, but yeah, generally, I, when I hit a Kickstarter, I've got something that's ready to go to press, and I just need to essentially get the crowd to help pay for the the printing and manufacture part of it, uh, which is largely composed of known timetables yep. um, which I then still add 50% to okay. um, uh, and uh, there was something else but yeah, you guys suggest yeah, they're yeah. better at estimating deadlines than I am and, I, and, and we are better at estimating than a lot of people on Kickstarter because we're, we delivered our last one right, which is about a month late and we're delivering this one about a month, month and a half late uh, is when it'll come out and when you tell people that, they're like, great, thanks for letting us know. That's a lot better than the two and a half years I've been waiting for. Yeah, right. Communicate constantly. The real, the, re well, the, the real hang-up is going to be art. You need to decide where the art is going to fall in this. Because 
you can you can do the writing up front, and that's probably not going to break the bank in any meaningful way. You can't really get the layout to where you want it to be without the art. You can placehold and stuff, but it's not going to be the final thing. Art is expensive. Um, and so if you say, I'm going to do the Kickstarter and then the pay for the art, art is also slow. And if you are using a small number of artists, each artist only has so much of a pipeline, and they're going to have their own things. So you got to decide. You haven't worked with them before, and you don't know what their time total is. There's going to be some... Or, or, and this or is, even if you do, they're going to have a health problem. Like, something's going to come up, yeah. which is why I want all of those sorts of variables locked down. And this is why any, yeah. promising dates any publisher would rather you be reliable than fast or good. Because a guy I know can turn it around in six weeks is better than a guy who might be able to turn it around in two. Or might drop it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and that's where a lot of the horror stories come from. So I think we're wrapped and we're yep. probably going to need to clear the room. But if you guys have any questions you want to ask, um, we're going to be around for the rest of the show. Come find us and we'll have to And like I mentioned, deadlyfriendly.com. I get, there's a contact me form. Use it. I respond to everyone. Thank you very much. Practically.